Acts 16, 1 to 15. We'll just pray. Lord and God, we, we thank you for the freedom that we can read your word. We thank you for the freedom that we can come to church and worship together. Lord, we just pray that as um, the message is preached, that you'll touch our hearts and our minds with, with your wisdom, with your knowledge, with your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 16. Paul also came back to Derby into Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came, to, when they came up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, <coughs> concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi which is a leading city to the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposed where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard of us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods and a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptised and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Thank you. Sorry about all the place names in there. I didn't write it, but you had to read it out. Um, it's a strange little passage, isn't it? And, and you're probably sitting there thinking, why would I choose this random little section in the book of Acts about Paul doing ministry and going here and going there and meeting this person and being stopped from this and being stopped from that? But that's actually what I want to talk about this morning. What happens when... God just frustrates our plans when things don't go the way we think. At, le at, at perhaps even at one point, we thought he wanted them to go. I was having a chat this week with our daughter. She's right in the middle of her year 12 exams. And uh, she's a bit of a stress bucket, but she's been, um, uh, you know, impressively calm this week. And I was having a chat with her about, um, you know, what, what creates anxiety about year 12, not that I don't know, but she said, oh, it's just that I don't know whether the things I want to do, I'm going to be able to do. They just all rest on these exams and these assessments. The power of her whole future 
is in the hands of those who assess her, her work. They don't really know her. They don't know her capacity, her potential, her spiritual gifts, her personality, her dreams. They just know what comes down the pipe in these pieces of writing. And she said, it just seems really unfair. And I said, so if that's the case, why, why do you seem incredibly calm? Because she has surprised us with how chilled she's been. And she said, well, I guess I just have to trust God. And I thought, yes. Not easy. Doesn't make it any easier. But what happens when God even he, himself seems to frustrate our plans or just leave us in limbo we just don't know and the reason this little story in the book of acts is helpful to me is because you may have picked it up when we read it but there are there are two little sections at the beginning of that story that talk about the background of course is that paul and his team wanted to go and encourage the churches. It was one of his missionary journeys. And just prior to Acts 16, Paul and Barnabas have this massive argument over whether or not they should take this young guy called Mark. Now, Mark had bailed out on the first missionary journey and had failed. And Paul said, he's not coming with us. He's a liability. He's a risk. And Barnabas had argued that, that Paul should give him another crack, that he's a young bloke, he's naive, and, and, and that he's worth taking along. And the Bible tells us that Paul and Barnabas had such a huge dispute over Mark that they never ended up ever working in ministry together again. At least the Bible doesn't record that they did. They went their separate ways. And yet, in Acts chapter 16, Paul decides he wants to take this other young guy who's untested, unproven by the name of Timothy. And he takes him. And they set out on this missionary journey, and they're committed to where they want to go, and they know where they feel the Spirit of God is leading them. And then we read in, in that early part of chapter 16, twice, that the Spirit of Jesus and the Holy Spirit prevented them. They tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Now, we don't know how he stopped them. We just know that he did. Back in, verse, in chapter 6, we also see that when, his, when they traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. So the very purpose of their trip, God stopped. So what do we do when that happens? I, um, I used to read a lot of biographies. My dad used to give us books. I grew up in Papua New Guinea, and so we only had books that my parents would give us, and he, they gave us books of you know, famous Christians to read. And I remember reading the biography of a very famous missionary by the name of Adoniram Judson. I don't know if you ever have ever heard of this man. Um, but Adoniram Judson was the very first overseas missionary ever to leave the United States. He's a huge name now in the American church. And he, he was a brilliant man, intellectually actually a genius. And he was reading by the age of three. He was fluent in Greek by the age of 11. Um, and he enrolled in this really prestigious Providence College, New York, to go to university. But while he was there, he became friends with another brilliant man by the name of Jacob Ames. And together, they, Adoniram Judson drifted away from his Christian upbringing. 
Because he was an intellect and it was the days, the age of enlightenment, he became a feral atheist along with his friend Jacob Ames. And they were a bit, in, you know, a bit of a terror on the campus there, inseparable. And having utterly rejected, in the case of Adoniram Judson, his Christian faith, and in the case of Jacob Ames, becoming even more committed to intellectual atheism, they influenced a lot of students away from their faith in God and away from a life of trust in Christ. Now, when they graduated, they developed a reputation on campus for attacking Christianity and for undermining the simplicity and naivety of Christian faith and trust in God. And they were known for that. When they graduated, all eyes were on these two men because people knew they were exceptionally gifted and they were going places. But after graduation, they went their separate ways. Judson wanted to pursue a career in the theatre, actually, and in writing and literature. Um, But it didn't work out for him. Doors didn't open. And late one night, many years later, in his book, um, To the Golden Shore, he was riding, riding a horse back from Boston to New York. And he was completely worn out, and he stopped at an inn late at night by the road. Now, there was no room in the inn. The irony of that was missed on Adoniram Judson. He was just so tired, he wanted, a, he wanted a bed. And the innkeeper said, I don't have a spare room. Well, I do have a spare space, but you don't want to stay in there. Because out the back of the hotel was like a barn, and there was two rooms out there. And in one of the rooms, he said, there's a man who's dying of a terrible, emaciating disease. And the stench is terrible. And he's, he's going to die tonight. I mean, this is, of course, the 19th century and, you know, it was... Actually, it was the 18th century and there were no medical supplies, no doctors. So this guy just provided a place for this very sick, dying man. Um, He said he's got a terrible, emaciating disease and his body is emanating a terrible stench. We cannot move him. The doctors have given him just a day to live. You can stay there if you like, but it would be most unpleasant. Well, Judson said, I'm too tired. I'm going to sleep anywhere, so just give me the room. So he gave him the room. But in the middle, he couldn't sleep. Um, In the middle of the night, he was listening to this man next door, and he described it later in his book as going through fits of rage and stupefaction, these old English, groaning and swearing and blaspheming God. It was only in the early hours, he says, when the sounds died out and he was able to catch a couple of hours rest. But next morning before he left, he asked the innkeeper about the man next door who'd kept him awake and just disturbed him so much with his anger and his bitterness and his blasphemy. The manager said, well, he died. What do you do when a stranger comes to your door and then catches ill and he dies in your inn? Oh, well, the innkeeper said, we're prepared for it. But you know, Mr. Judson, I've been thinking these last few hours, I've been looking at his papers. He was a man of great intellect. Remarkably gifted, apparently a graduate of the prestigious Providence College, New York. But he died here in my hotel without family or associates, without even a friend nearby, angry with God. What was his name? Judson said. His name was Jacob Ames, his best friend. 
And in his autobiography, he talks about how he tried to ride back home that day as he realized that not only was the man who died next door his best friend, but he died alone, angry, disillusioned and confused. And it was all around the absence of God and faith in God. And so he gave his life back to Christ amidst unrelenting tears on the back of a horse. And he resolved to determine, he determined that he was going to give his life to the cause of the gospel, but in particular to those with the greatest need and the least opportunity to hear about the reality of Christ and the confidence of faith. So he gave himself to go to India. He gathered in 1810 with a bunch of others that became known as the Haystack Meetings and he married someone and after years of preparation finally got to India. That was his life's work to get to India, to be a missionary to India. Adoniram Judson, missionary to India. But the British East India Company um, believed that Americans would get in the way of their business and so they lobbied the government to prevent Americans from living in India and so he was kicked out of the country and ended up in Burma, a place called Burma. Tried for years to get into India and God kept shutting the door. And so he and his wife decided while they were in Burma, they might as well do ministry in Burma and so they began translating the Bible into Burmese. It wasn't a Christian country and he ended up in prison and tortured for three years and his wife died. He remarried and his second wife died and he had numbers of children and half of them died. He was in, the doors to India never opened. But after many years in prison, he led one single person to Christ, a fellow prisoner. And through that man and his influence on others, 18 others over the next few years gave their lives to Christ. Adoniram Judson eventually died. By the time he died, there were 63 churches, 7,000 believers. And by the turn of the century, 200,000 believers in the churches that he and his wife left in Burma. If you go to Thailand now and read a Thai Bible, it was translated by Anne and Adoniram Judson nearly 200 years ago. They still use it today. And on his gravestone it says, Adoniram Judson, born 1788, died 1850, molded his birthplace, the Burmese church and the Burmese scriptures, his monument, but his record is on high. And I was thinking about that as I was reading this text because it's a very similar story there in the book of Acts. How it is that sometimes when God keeps us, shuts doors, he's not keeping us from something. He might be saving us from something. But he may also have plans to use us in ways that we, of which we could never predict. And that's where faith really grows legs. And one of the people in this little story that I just wanted to camp on briefly this morning is this woman by the name of Lydia. 
We read from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed to Samothrace, and the next day to Neapolis. From there, we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days, it says. When Paul visited a new city, it was his usual practice to attend the local synagogue. Paul was a Jew. And, you know, they would visit synagogues and share the gospel that Jesus was the Messiah. But in this city of Philippi, they can't find a synagogue. There is none. And that tells us something about the city of Philippi. It means there were very few resident Jews in Philippi. Um, according to Jewish custom, all it took to constitute a synagogue was 10 men. Not women, men. You could have 100 women who were God-fearing, but that didn't matter. It was 10 blokes. And that's all you needed to have a synagogue. So Paul and his team find themselves in a city where there's not even 10 believers. Now, Philippi was the major city outside of Rome. John Stock called it a Rome away from Rome. It was a highly integrated Roman city. And they are in hostile territory. And as they soon discover, you know, talking about Christ was a recipe for disaster. Now, because Philippi is a cent central city, was a central city in the Roman Empire, people used to pass through there. And as was the custom back then, if there wasn't a synagogue, uh, the only way that people who loved God and who had given some sort of assent to Jesus, or even Jews who weren't men, so women, the only way they could gather and study the scriptures was if they went was if they went outside the city. And so Paul and his team decide well if there's no believers in the city let's go and look outside and sure enough they find a small group outside verse 13 on the sabbath um luke's writing this and he counts himself among it he says we went outside the city to the river where we expected to find at least a place of prayer and there was there was a group of women meeting there and one of those listening was a woman named lydia a dealer in cloth from the city of Thyatira, and she was a worshipper of God. So Lydia is not a Jew, but she's a Gentile who somewhere along the line has decided that the God of Israel is the one true God, and she wants to meet with other believers. So she is a businesswoman meeting with a group of Jewish women and other Gentile believers in a small group by a river outside this dangerous and antagonistic foreign city. It would be not dissimilar if you were meeting with a group of believers on the outskirts of, um, you know, a city in Iraq or Syria right now. A dangerous place where the gospel is persecuted, but people still meet. And that's where they found these women meeting. Now, we read that her name was Lydia, but the translation is the Lydian woman from an area called Thyatira. Now, Thyatira was what we now know as Iran. It was a part of the Persian Empire. And people of that area were known throughout the world for their skill in manufacturing a particular dye. It was purple. Have any of you ever bought a Persian carpet, a Middle Eastern carpet of some, you know those sort of carpets they sell sometimes in cheap wholesale sales? If you look at them, purple is always the primary colour. has been for 3,000 years. That's because Persian carpets were known for this one particular colour purple that was only available through a particular plant that grew in and around Thyatira. 
in Iran, in Persia. It's still true today. And this woman is a dealer in purple cloth. So she's a businesswoman. She'd come to Philippi trading in this dye. And we know from archaeology that Philippi had a business network of merchants who specialised in trading in purple cloth. So Lydia was one of those. And Luke tells us that she was a God-fearing person, but she was a Gentile. In other words, she was giving assent to the God of the Jews, but knew nothing of the gospel and nothing of Jesus. But they were searching the scriptures together to try and discover not just who the Messiah was, but how God would enable her to live in a way that pleased him, even though she wasn't a Jew. But it's more than that. If you turn in your Bibles to the last book of the Bible, we won't do it right now, but if you turn to the book of Revelation, you'll find that there's a series of letters to churches. So by the end of the Scriptures, churches throughout the ancient Near East had been established of Laodicea and Phrygia, and you'll find that there is a church there called the Church of Thyatira. There is absolutely no evidence that any of the early apostles or Christians from the New Testament church ever went to Thyatira. So how in the world could it be that one of the most vibrant and vigorous churches within 30 or 40 years of the death of Jesus was established in the city of Thyatira? Well, archaeologists and historians and theologians will tell you how. But this one beautiful Persian woman who happened to be sitting by a river outside one of her trading partner cities, was led to Christ by a group of men who happened to wander into that city because the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit had prevented them on two earlier steps from doing what they really wanted to do and sent them elsewhere. See, we have no idea how it is that God might use us. You have no idea the things that he can do and wants to do in you and through you, even though you'll find yourselves in circumstances where you just want to cry out, why? Why this? Why now? Why this closed door? That closed, those closed doors that we read about in Acts 16 are what led the birth of the church to be a Western church as opposed to an Asian church. The entire history of Christianity from that day onwards went north into Persia and west through Macedonia to Rome, up into Europe, eventually to England, and for one and a half thousand years became the cradle of the gospel until the great missionary movements of post-Reformation when it went east into Asia. Now, we don't know why God did it that way. He could have easily have shaped Christianity to be an Asian faith in its incubation because ultimately it's an ancient Near Eastern faith if you want to put a geography on it. But the church itself was established ultimately in Europe. The Roman Catholic Church and then the Reformation, the great reformers, all of that, the entire history of Christianity was shaped by an accidental conversation, a coincidence 
of a team of people who loved God, but who came up against closed doors. It's, an, it's a very important and for me an incredibly encouraging thing to see because, you know, my life's been full of closed doors and, you know, you go through dark valleys, you go through circumstances where everything in you wants to cry out, why? Why them and not me? I mentioned in chapter 15 that Paul and Barnabas had this argument over Mark. And Mark is a classic case of a young guy who was naive, wide-eyed, enthusiastic. The Gospels tell us that it was Mark's parents' home that was most likely the location of the Last Supper. He was very close to Peter, like he called him Uncle Peter. Um, He was there at that last night. Uh, You know, when they go out into the dark. Remember when Peter, Peter cut the ear off the soldier in the garden? And in the Gospel of Mark, it said a young man was there dressed only in his pyjamas and he fled naked. Remember that little story? It only occurs in Mark. How would Mark have known that? Because it was him. He follows these men that he loves so much that he looks up to. Uncle Peter, Uncle James, Bartholomew, you know, these, the apostles. They're meeting in his home. And he follows them out into the night because something's happening and the air is tense and Jesus has talked about being crucified and they're traumatized and they've shared the Last Supper together. It's all taking place in and around this teenager. So he's only dressed in his bedsheet, but he creeps out at night to see what happens and he's there when there's a confrontation and the betrayal of Judas and be, you know, in the fear and the uproar of Jesus' arrest and his uncle cutting the ear off the soldier and Jesus healing it, he's terrified and he runs back home and he even leaves his clothes behind. Later on, he pops up. He's, the, you know, he's a cousin or a relative of Barnabas. And so Barnabas wants him to grow in his faith and he wants him to plug into the Apostle Paul. But the Apostle Paul is this intimidating, fearsome former terrorist who's hardcore. And Mark goes along on his first trip, gets scared and leaves. And so Paul says, he's not coming second time. He bailed out last time. I'm not having him. And Paul being the encourage, and Barnabas being the encourager, Barnabas means son of encouragement, says, just take him, man. Like he's, he failed, but give him another go. No, I'm not. Please, no. All right, well, I'm not going. Well, don't come. So Paul takes Luke and Silas and heads off on this journey. Theologians argue about which one was right. The reality is both of them were right because Mark wouldn't have gone through the suffering that Paul went through. He was, you know, stoned, not this sort of stone, but, you know, he was, you know, the stones being thrown at him, imprisoned, tortured, came across demons. You know the whole story of that second missionary journey, demon-possessed people. Mark wasn't up to that yet. But what is so wonderful about the story of Mark is that years later, When Paul is in prison in Rome, he writes about the people that he wants near him. And he speaks about a man by the name of Demas who abandoned him. He says, Demas, having loved this present world, has abandoned me. But if you can, send Mark to me, for he's an encourager to my soul. So somewhere between the no, you can't come, and I'm in prison And I'm about to die, and I want someone whom I love and can trust. Send Mark. Somewhere along that journey, the Bible doesn't tell us how, 
Paul and Mark became deeply embedded partners in the work of Christ. The no to Mark was the formation of his character. And he ended up writing one of the books of the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. See, we don't know, do we, how God might use us, even the things we go through. If you go to the United States and you go to the Billy Graham Center, which is a big, massive you know, center in America, you go to the Billy Graham Center, you'll be able to go to a room there and what they have done, what researchers and historians have done, is they've traced, you know how you can go online and get a, you know, get a blood sample and get a trace of your DNA all the way back to, you know, one, you know like 10 generations, where you came from? Or you, well, well the, the Billy Graham Center have, have done an analysis of the spiritual DNA of Billy Graham by tracing every person who led someone, who led someone, who led someone, who led someone, who led, someone, who led Billy Graham to Jesus just to see who they were, going back 15, 20 generations. You know what it is? It's a list of random, anonymous people. Traders, fishermen, prisoners, school teachers, merchants, evangelists, Bible, all, all the way through. Someone passing on their love for Jesus to someone else. And in that lineage pops up Billy Graham, the most effective evangelist in history. I wonder who's in your spiritual DNA. Who it was that led you to Christ? And who led them? And who led them? And who led them? And who led them? All the way to the headwaters of the gospel which was Jesus himself. Because you're, down, you're downstream of faithful gospel witness. And I guarantee you that if you could know it, and one day you will, you will find it is a story of immense suffering, of rejection, of isolation, of success, of failure, all the stuff that happens in life. The common thread being faithfulness. Paul and Silas didn't know who they were even going to become in the life of the church. But here they are, even though they've been given a vision of a man of Macedonia, the most significant conversation they have in that entire season of their life was with a random Gentile businesswoman. Culturally inappropriate, yes. Dangerous, absolutely. Irrelevant, absolutely not. See, I was, I was led to faith, not by my dad or mum, even though I was a missionary kid, grew up in Papua New Guinea um, in the jungle, but by an orphan, a Papua New Guinean orphan. His name was Ipe. He, I was about 10 and he was 15, 16, and Ipe had seen both of his parents killed in a tribal fight. We lived in a part of Papua New Guinea back then that was pretty dangerous. There were a lot of tribal fights, a lot of people killed in these, you know, animistic, you know, conflicts. And we lived right in the middle of it. And we saw it a lot. In fact, it was quite funny in a, in a weird sort of a way because my dad had an aeroplane and an airstrip and we had a grass hut. 
this is back in the 60s when it was frontier mission work and there were two tribes on either side of the valley that hated each other and they were constantly at, you know, killing each other and fighting and it turned out that the best place that they liked to fight was the airstrip. <laughs> and uh, they, they, they had no issue with us, they loved us but they didn't like each other. So every now and then you'd, you'd hear the walk, you know, the drums going and then there'd be noise and people would run through the bush with their you know, feathers and paint and all their walks and you knew it was on. Someone had stolen someone's pig or, you know, woman or something. So it was on. And there'd be one group on this side of the airstrip and they'd get their arrows and they'd fire hundreds of arrows in one. You hear the arrows go through the air across the other side of the jungle. You hear people groan. Then another arrows. And then the aeroplane would land. That all stopped. And the plane would land, missionaries would get on, get off, empty the cargo, take off again, then it all start again, you know. Well, this little boy, you know, his parents were killed in a tribal fight like that, and he'd crawled over a mountain range into the next valley, and there was a man who was living there from New Zealand. He was in his late 40s, businessman, just carrying out his little business in a trade store, selling biscuits and powdered milk and fruit and vegetables to the expats in the area, but mainly to the local people. Matches, axes, stuff like that. And this little boy wanders in. He's like four. He's bloodied, snotty nose. He's been crying. He's crawled over the mountains for two days, lost and hungry. There were no adoption laws back then. There were no, there's no mechanism to do anything with a child like that. So he just took him into his home and raised him as his son. He loved him deeply. But he also loved Jesus. And he raised this little boy to love Christ with a passion. And when I met him, and he was 15 by this stage, we were living on the north coast in Weewak. And I'd never met anyone who loved Jesus as much as this 15-year-old kid. He wasn't a kid to me, he was like a man, you know, because you know, it's like that when you're 10, you know, you meet a 15-year-old, it's like... Ooh. But he used to say to me, you can't get into heaven on the faith of your father, you need, you need Christ. And he used to sing this song to me, it was an old hymn, and all the only songs he knew were this song that this old, this old New Zealand missionary had taught him, and so they were all hymns. My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine, for thee all the pleasures of sin I resign, my gracious Redeemer, my Saviour and friend. You know, you know, he'd sing these hymns. It was so weird, this black, you know, Papua New Guinean orphan kid singing 18th century hymns, but he, he loved Christ, and he'd come by my home, and he picked me up on his bike, and he'd say to me, let's go to the villages and we'll tell them about Jesus. And we did. And he'd go and he'd, he was leading people to Christ in the villages around Weewak constantly. A young man filled with the Holy Spirit, being used of God. Well, we left Papua New Guinea, you know, when I had to go to high school. And so I never saw him and lost touch with him, never knew what happened to him. I'd heard on occasion that things hadn't gone all that well for him, that he eventually got married and he lost his first wife through sickness. But it was all third, fourth hand through missionary networks. And then for years and years heard nothing until someone told me that they thought he was in prison. That he'd fallen in with a group of rascals, they call them up there, and he'd ended up in prison. And I just thought, what? why? How could that possibly be? But I prayed for him often because I owe my spiritual life to him. 
And I still remember the day that he invited me to a Bible study at a high school, not far. It was a local indigenous, you know, in Papua New Guinea high school. And there was an evangelist, a Pentecostal black, you know, Papua New Guinean evangelist giving, you know, the gospel there. And I went, I was the only white kid in the whole room, about this many people. And he gave this presentation of the gospel. And IP had invited me to come and he'd said to me, you're going to hear the whole message and, you know, you need to make a decision whether you're going to trust Jesus. And in the middle of this message, I, I just felt the Spirit of God speak to me. It was, it was just overwhelming. And I became overwhelmingly aware of how lost I was. And I needed Jesus. I wanted to have what he had. And you know, back in those days, they used to make, when you, if you wanted to receive Christ, you had, to, you had to close your eyes and they gave a sinner's prayer from the front. And if you prayed along with the person, you know, you were deemed to have prayed that prayer. So I did that. And I could barely stop myself from crying. I was genuinely emotional, even though I was only 10 or 11 or something. And, then it, and, you, and you know how they used to do it also. When, the, when the prayer was over, he said, now, if you prayed that prayer, keep all your eyes closed. I want you to raise your hand. So I raised my hand. I, I didn't see how many other kids raised their hands. And then he did what evangelists used to do as well. He said, you can open your eyes now. And he said, now, if you raise your hand, I'd like you to stand up. And I think, what's the point of that? And I was so introverted and so insecure, I didn't. I didn't stand up. I'd given my life to Christ in that prayer, but I didn't want to stand up in front of all these kids. And then the guy at the front says, And he said, I saw your hand. How come you're not standing? And I said, I just want to go to the toilet. <laughs> but actually, I'd given my life to Christ. And on the way home, I remember in the back of the ute, we were driving back to the mission where we lived, my friend IP was just in tears of joy that his little white Australian mate had met Christ. And I remembered that for years and years, never knowing what happened, heard that he'd been in prison. Until this, this last year, I'm at MST and I got to tell you, it was a rough season for me personally, my role and you know some things that happened and some difficult decisions and I was just feeling the burden of leadership and crying out to God and saying, I don't even know that I'm all that suited to this, Lord. I'm the, most, I'm the least qualified of the entire faculty. Why am I the principal of a theological college? And this letter arrives on the desk and it's dirty and it's handwritten to my brother Tim, care of Melbourne School of Theology, you know, and on the back, IP. So I opened the letter. This is what he said. Dear brother, finally I have found you. How are my other brothers, Michael and Jonathan and Robin and Christopher, that's my brothers, and my father and my mother, Max and Joe, that's my dad and mum. My life has not been an easy one. Many failures, many troubles, much suffering, many closed doors. I have not become the man I should have been or that God wanted me to be. I've spent much time in prison. I've had three wives. Two of them have died. I have 12 children and have lost some of them too. But I am content and full of joy, for I have found again my first love. Or should I say, he has found me. As he did in the beginning... And I'm walking faithfully with Jesus, my Lord and Saviour, once again. And he is faithful and his love is unchanging. 
What a thrill to know that you are serving our Lord. Perhaps one day we will see one another again before we see him face to face, which we most assuredly will. Your friend and brother, IP. And I'm sitting at my desk and I'm thinking, thank you, Father. Because whatever it is that I might do in my little sphere of influence as the principal of a school or of this, you know, in a mission work or whatever I might have done in my life or whatever I might somehow manage to do in my life that has eternal value. And I absolutely believe that the Scriptures promise that God has promised you eternal value through your life if you walk faithfully with Him. And I don't know what the sphere of that in my life is, but I know one thing, that whatever it is that is worthwhile and fruitful from my life are jewels in IP's crown. And Stan Chong, that New Zealand businessman who's long since been in heaven before him. And whoever it was that led Stan to Jesus. And whoever it was that led them to Jesus all the way back to the foot of the cross. To see your life as an investment in eternal things. Be faithful to God, whatever the sphere of influence you have. It may simply be one conversation that is the most eternally strategic in your entire life. But God says he wants your whole life to be an investment in eternal things. So when God shuts doors, leads us into valleys, creates seasons of ambiguity and waiting, trust him. You are already living your eternal life now. All right? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for Lydia, that we're downstream of her faith. And for Paul and Silas and Mark. But thank you as well for those that led us to Jesus. And we pray that you would use us in such a way that downstream of our lives, long after we've gone, will be the aroma of Christ in the life of others. That you would bear fruit that lasts because of our faithfulness, even when we don't know the where, when, or the how, or the what. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.